0: Good morning, everyone. Today's scripture reading is from Genesis chapter 16, verse 1 to 16, in our new International Version Bible, on page 11. Hagar and Ishmael. Now Sarah, Abram's wife, had borne him no children, but she had an Egyptian slave named Hagar. So she said to Abram, the law has kept me from having children. Go sleep with my slave. Perhaps I can build a family through her." Abram agreed to what Sarah said. So after Abram has been living in Canaan 10 years, Sarah, his wife, took her Egyptian slave Hagar and gave her to her husband to be his wife. He slept with Hagar, and she conceived. When she knew she was pregnant, she began to despise her mistress. Then Sarah said to Abram, you are responsible for the wrong I'm suffering. I put my slave in your arms. And now that she knows she is pregnant, she despises me. May the Lord judge between you and me. Your slave is in your hands, Abram said. Do with her whatever you think best. Then Sarah mistreated Hagar, so she fled from her. The angel of the law found Hagar near a spring in the desert. It was the spring that is beside the road to shore. And he said, Hagar, slave of Sarah, where have you come from and where are you going? I'm running away from my mistress Sarah, she answered. Then the angel of the law told her, go back to your mistress and submit to her. The angel added, I will increase your descendants so much that they will be too numerous to count." The angel of the Lord also said to her, you are now pregnant and you will give birth to a son. You shall name him Ishmael, for the Lord has heard of your misery. He will be a wild donkey of a man. His hand will be against everyone and everyone's hand against him. And he will live in hostility towards all his brothers. She gave this name to the Lord, who spoke to her. You are the God who sees me. For she said, I have now seen the one who sees me. That is why the well was called Beer Laha Brod. It is still there, between Kadesh and Beret. So Hagar born Abram a son, and Abram gave the name Ishmael to the son she had born. Abram was 86 years old when Hagar born him Ishmael.
1: Good morning, everyone. It's so wonderful to worship with you all. Today, um, for those of you who may not know me, my name is Emily, um, and I'm, uh, in the words of Marion Cameron, a walking billboard for next year's retreat, so do sign up when you get a chance. (laughs) Um, We've all been here. It's 3 a.m., half asleep, you hesitantly roll over and sit up in bed. Frustrated at yourself for drinking an extra large glass of water just prior to going to sleep. Because now you have to use the loo. You shift to the edge of your bed, bringing your feet to the floor and your hands to your face. And you sit there for several seconds, rubbing your eyes in an effort to orient yourself in the pitch black darkness. After a short-lived internal dialogue with yourself about whether you really need to use the loo, or if you can just wait until your alarm in the morning, you force yourself off the bed and slowly make your way to the bathroom, your hands grasping at the walls to direct you. Upon returning to your bedroom, you feel a little more confident. Your eyes have now had some time to adjust to the darkness, and so you move a little faster, you use your hands a little less. And you sense your initial frustration quickly turning into an eager anticipation for the warm bed that awaits. Bam! Your baby toe catches on the corner, protruding out from the wall. Pain shoots up your leg then reverberates through your entire body. There you stand, half-dressed, half-asleep, reeling from the pain in your wounded toe. At first, there's only a silent scream. Your mouth opens, your eyes squeeze shut, your hand presses against the wall to balance yourself, and you lift your leg, swinging it back and forth. Then comes the audible cry. Whether it's a string of unassociated words which surface at random or a less than cordial accusation directed at the wall, it's quite phenomenal how the part of your body furthest away from your mouth has unmatched power to create sound that comes forth from it. Now, you might be wondering why I have spent some time going through and narrating a story about a trivial scene of toe stubbing. To clarify, it's not because we as a pastoral staff have a thing about using toes in sermon illustrations about prayer. Rather, the answer lies in the fact that as one shouts a cry of pain into the dark, as they stub their toe in the middle of the night. So we too are invited to speak out our pain, our grief, our disappointment, and our hate to God in prayer when we and those around us are engulfed by the darkness of suffering and injustice. These prayers spoken in the context of great pain and suffering, are what we call prayers of lament. In a general sense, lament prayers fall under the characterization of petition, something that Greg walked us through last week, because they include requests for God to hear our cry, to take notice of our painful experience, and to respond according to his compassion and justice and mercy. However, there's something which distinguishes lament prayers from more general petition, namely that they are prayers underscored by unrefined honesty and emotional intensity and an uncomfortable rawness that is not often seen in more general petitionary prayer. Laments are not prayers where one passively and gently expresses their disapproval of life circumstances or the presence of evil on our world. They're unfiltered screams and accusatory cries which pierce the chasm of divine silence and distance that we experience when we face suffering and injustice. They're prayers that demand that God does not abandon us. Why me? How long? Where are you, God? These prayers, as the image representing this form of prayer suggests, are in essence us shaking our fists at God. We rage. We hurt. There is confusion. There is sorrow. And we experience all of it and we express all of it. As John Swinton says, a lament is a repeated cry of pain, rage, sorrow, and grief that emerges in the midst of suffering and alienation. It is a very particular form of prayer that is not content with soothing platitudes or images of God who will listen only to voices that appease and compliment. Lament takes the brokenness of the human experience into the heart of God and demands that God answer. Unfortunately, lament is a form of prayer that is becoming increasingly rare. Whether it's because the audacious, accusatory, and unfiltered language of lament seems to imply faithlessness on the part of the prayer, All because the Western churches become intoxicated with superficial optimism that drives notions of triumphalism and victory. Statistics show that the vast majority of churches in the West neither talk about nor practice lament. Yet this is not what we see in Scripture. There is an entire book Called lamentations, and nearly half the Psalms constitute lament prayer. Here are a few examples Have mercy on me, Lord, for I am faint. Heal me, Lord, for my bones are in agony. My soul is in deep anguish. How long, Lord, how long? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me, so far from my cries of anguish? My God, I cry out to you by day, but you do not answer. By night, but I find no rest. Save me, O God, for the waters have come up to my neck. I sink into the miry depths where there is no foothold. I have come into the deep waters, the floods engulf me. I am worn out, calling for help. My throat is parched, my eyes fail, looking for my God. As the fire consumes the forest or a flame sets fire to the mountains ablaze. So pursue them with your tempest and terrify them with your storm. Cover their faces with shame, Lord, so that they will seek your name. Before we continue, I want to take a moment to specifically consider this last example from Psalm 83. This particular lament falls under the subcategory imprecatory or cursing psalms. Since it involves the prayer pronouncing a curse over those who have hurt or wronged them. In our contemporary Western culture, cursing prayer found in Psalms has a tendency to make us feel very uncomfortable. And oftentimes we simply dismiss it or outright disapprove of it, refusing to accept that these psalms of cursing may have relevance for our life today. One of the main reasons for this sentiment is that these are prayers that express hate. And because hate is often viewed as the opposite of love, how can we love our enemies and pray for those who persecute us if we pray hateful words about them and towards them? However, what if I told you that the opposite of hate is not love? That in fact, to feel hate in the face of hurt, betrayal, and injustice is actually natural and, dare I say, good, because it shows us that we care. Now, don't get me wrong, I'm not saying that hate isn't a dangerous or dark emotion, because it is. And I'm definitely not condoning expressions of hate that perpetuate hurt and injustice. Because anything that does so is entirely contrary to the character and purposes of God. However, what I'm trying to say is that as human beings who live in a broken world, we will experience hurt that will stir up hate in our hearts. The answer is not to suppress our hate because we think it's unacceptable to feel such an emotion. It's to express it to God in prayer because in doing so, we resist the temptation to express that hate, to take out revenge on those who have hurt us. We entrust our pain to God and believe that he is just and that when he says vengeance is mine, he means it. This is something we cannot and should not miss. Biblical prayer demands authenticity on the part of the prayer. While we may be tempted to pray who we think we should be, We must pray who we actually are. If I had begun today by narrating a story about me stubbing my toe on the corner of a wall, and when describing how I responded, I said, I quoted Bottom from William Shakespeare's play, Midsummer Night's Dream. The wall, oh wall, oh sweet and lovely wall. You would have laughed, and not because it would have been genuinely funny, but because it would have been ludicrous for me to suggest that my immediate response to stubbing my toe was a well articulated, thoughtful, and relevant Shakespearean quote. (laughs) Why then do we find, when we find ourselves wounded by suffering, do we think that the most appropriate response is to pray in a way where we praise God? adoringly expressing our delight in him, and only occasionally making a gentle request for his help. When we feel abandoned by God, when his silence is deafening and seemingly endless, why do we hesitate to rage against his perceived absence? To demand that he speak to us and save us. In the passage that was read for us today, we heard about the story of Hagar, an Egyptian slave who served in the household of a man named Abram. Prior to Hagar being introduced to us in Genesis 16, we're told that Abram's wife, Sarai, was barren, something which proved to be of great consequence given that God had promised Abram that his descendants would outnumber the stars in the night sky and the sand on the seashore. How could this promise be fulfilled when his wife Sarai could not bear a child? Now, given that it was commonplace in the ancient world for slaves to bear children on behalf of their childless mistresses, It's not surprising that Sarai suggests this to Abram as a solution for her barrenness. If she couldn't bear a child for Abram, Hagar could, and thus God's promise would still be fulfilled. Only it's more complicated than this. While Hagar does conceive, as Sarai had hoped, so does a vicious rivalry between the two women. The NIV describes the conflict in these terms. When she, being Hagar, knew that she was pregnant, she began to despise her mistress. Then Sarai mistreated Hagar. Such a description seems to place most of the blame on Hagar. We see her despising her mistress. And so, of course, Sarai responds with retribution and um, mistreatment. Perhaps Hagar even deserves the treatment she received. But this is not the case. In fact, I think that's such a description which seems to place most of the blame on Hagar is actually because our English translations, at least in my opinion, don't do the greatest job of trying to explain what's actually going on here. For example, the Hebrew word translated as despised carries the notion of dishonoring. To understand this word, of, this word in terms of honor and dishonor creates some ambiguity around the nature of Hagar's treatment of Sarai. It's difficult to tell whether Hagar is directly dishonoring Sarah or if Sarai simply feels dishonored because in a culture and in a world which only valued women on their ability to conceive a child, she had no value. She had no honor. And so to see her slave falling pregnant, and conceiving, of course that would bring up more emotions. Additionally, the Hebrew word used for Sarai's mistreatment of Hagar implies extreme cruelty, even oppression. In fact, it's the same word that's used in Exodus 3 to describe the Egyptian slave owners' treatment of the Israelites when the Israelites were in slavery in Egypt. With this said, I don't want us to get hung up on word choices. I'm merely trying to show that the story is not as black and white as it may first appear. The reality is, I do not think that the text is calling us to assign blame, to take sides, and to become participants in the rivalry between Sarai and Hagar. Doing so will cause us to invalidate the suffering of one of these women. They both were suffering intense pain. And for us to say that one of them was to blame is to say, well, their suffering doesn't actually matter that much. They deserved it. Rather, we need to empathize with these women. Now, we're speaking specifically about Hagar, And so in order to try and empathize with her specifically, I've written a lament on her behalf, which I will soon read to you. We're told in Genesis 16, verse 11, the Lord heard Hagar's misery. And so it implies that she spoke out and lamented her suffering. However, the author of Genesis doesn't provide us with these words hence my inspired take on it. As you listen to the following lament, notice the words and phrases that you identify with. What makes you feel uncomfortable? What brings you comfort and peace? Do you see me, God of my master, Abraham? Do I not matter to you? Does the child I carry not matter to you? What have I or my unborn child done to deserve such harsh and abusive treatment? Was I not ripped away from my own family and taken to a land unknown to me? Was I not forced to fulfill the marital obligations of my mistress, to bear a son who would never really be my own? Yet in spite of all this, Doing just as I was supposed to do, just as I was forced to do, I have been rewarded with affliction, not affection, with sorrow, not security, with rejection, not welcome. May this grief that has befallen me before my mistress Sarai, may she not know the joy of childbearing, nor experience the satisfaction of nursing a child on her own breast. May her hopes for an enduring family line be cast out and wither away, as I was cast out by her and now wither away. Arise and act, Lord. Come to my aid and save me. Redeem my life from the pit. I have heard it said that you are a faithful God, a God who does not abandon the weak, the lowly, or the sojourner. Yet as I cry out to you beneath the night sky, the same sky where you made hopeful promises of life and blessing to my master Abraham, I feel the darkness of the night consuming me as the glimmers of hope in my own heart are extinguished by the agonizing reality of my suffering." I cry out day and night, but you do not listen. All I have to drink, all that there is to sustain me are the drops of sweat on my brow and the flood of tears flowing from my eyes. For you have abandoned me, you have left me to die an untimely death. But you, O oh Lord, you found me and you redeemed me like an ointment that soothes the sharp pain of an open wound, so your presence washes over me. You have granted me rest for my tired body, peace for my anxious mind, and hope for my broken heart. You have heard my cry for help and poured out your mercy and loving kindness. Having seen me in distress, you moved swiftly to show me your compassion, let your praise forever be on my lips. Only why do I have to return to my mistress to reface the rebuke and abuse she gives me? If you found me in the wilderness, why can't you sustain me here? Yet I know this to be true. You, O God, are the God who sees me. Surely, I have seen the one who sees me. And so I say, I am bound yet liberated. I am suffering yet seen. I am broken yet made whole. I will trust in your unfailing compassion. There's a very uncomfortable tension that exists in Hagar's story, which is illuminated by this prayer. Namely, that Hagar is seen by God, but she's not freed by God. As I consider Hagar's experience, I cannot help but ask myself, if God could liberate his people from slavery in Egypt, why couldn't he liberate Hagar? If he's a God who is for the oppressed, a God who despises and vehemently opposes oppression why would he send Hagar back to a mistress who was oppressing her? Before I go any further, I do need to make one thing very clear. Any attempt to answer these questions or reconcile this tension by suggesting that God says victims of abuse must return to their abusers is without a doubt unacceptable, inexcusable, and grossly inconsistent with the testimony of scripture. Hagar's story should never be used to justify the perpetuation of oppression, never. Yet this still doesn't alleviate the discomfort that we feel when we consider why God didn't simply take away Hagar's pain and resolve her situation. Why did he tell her to return and submit? While I wish I could stand up here and say, in my prayerful preparation for this sermon, I discovered an answer that explains this. I would be lying to you. If anything, I was left with more questions. However, in my wrestling, I found myself being led to a place of relinquishment, a place where I was able to settle and find peace in the unexplainable reality that is this. Sometimes life just doesn't make sense. the suffering human beings experience as a result of living in a broken world is something that we will just never fully understand. And while this understanding can easily translate into a very real and felt sense of divine absence and silence, something which I'm being honest, I have been wrestling with, there is something to be said about waiting on God as we sang this morning. A few months ago, I received news from one of my closest friends, saying that she had unexpectedly gone into labor three months early and given birth to her baby girl, Gracelyn. Tragically, because Gracelyn was born so premature, Her precious and underdeveloped body could not sustain life outside the womb, and she died. It was an unspeakable tragedy, the kind that leaves one utterly undone. Nothing about it made sense to me, and for a while I had no words to articulate the grief, the rage, and the disorientation that I felt. Nevertheless, over time, the the tears rolling down my cheeks and the physical ache deep within my heart translated into speech, mostly consisting of questions and accusations aimed at God. How could this be? How could a beautiful, innocent child be robbed of her life, and why? If God is the giver and sustainer of life, why couldn't he continue to breathe life into Graceland's body? I raged, I wept, I wrestled. Couldn't God have stopped this from happening? This past Wednesday was Graceland's due date. It was a day that was supposed to be marked by celebration a new life. Only the tears that I cried this week were not tears of joy, but tears of deep sorrow. Once again, I found myself raging and weeping and wrestling. My grief is still raw. And my questions remain unanswered, yet amidst the emotional storm ripping away at my fragile heart, God was there. He is there listening to me as I wrestle, weeping with me as I cry and raging with me as I lament the injustice of a baby's life being lost, not lived. His presence doesn't magically cure me of my grief. Nor does it lessen the forcefulness of my lament. However, it does fill me with hope. A hope that while not diminishing my sorrow now, reminds me that the tears I cry will one day be wiped from my eye. I wonder if this was Hagar's experience. Amidst suffering and pain, she looked up and saw God whose face was turned towards her, whose eyes were filled with tears and whose ears were attentive to her cry. She saw the God who saw her. And though she continued to experience sorrow and pain, she was able to hope. Bound, yet liberated. Suffering, yet seen. Broken, yet made whole. As part of our series on prayer, we've been practicing various different prayer practices related to each of the aspects of prayer that we've been covering. Each of these practices, along with the one we'll be doing today, are posted on our website. So if you want to go take a look at them, it's on the Spiritual Practices drop-down menu. Today, since we've been talking about lament, I thought it would be great if we wrote our own laments. Your lament can either be on behalf of yourself or on behalf of another person but I strongly encourage you to be as honest and as authentic as you can be in your prayer. There is no prayer that is too offensive, too audacious or too emotionally intense for God to handle. So do give it all to him. Biblical laments typically include the following elements which you can consider as you write your prayer. There is usually an honest complaint. The complaint is always directed at God, whether or not God is being blamed for the suffering. And there is often an expression of trust or praise in the faithful character of God. Now, it's important to know that while most biblical laments contain these elements, there is no set structure to biblical lament. There is a movement that ebbs and flows. Sometimes there is a movement from lament to trust. Sometimes there is a movement that goes between lament and trust, fluctuating back and forth. And sometimes there's no apparent movement, just lament, just complaint. It's really important that we realize the significance of the movements that we see in poetic biblical lament, because it shows us that lament itself is an act of trust. Whether or not you are able, at this point in time, to explicitly express trust in God, the fact that you of bringing your pain, your sorrow, your grief, your hate to God in prayer, is in and of itself an act of trust, even if you cannot bring yourself to say the words, God, I trust you. As I said before, when writing your lament, just take some time to really consider the emotions that you feel about a situation you're experiencing, a situation that someone you know is experiencing, or a situation in our world today. Sometimes I find it really helpful to consider an image that represents my grief. It helps me articulate it a little better and a little easier. And I just wanna encourage you, if you sense any embarrassment or shame as you write something, don't stop, keep pushing. Because it's in that moment where we are willing to honestly express how we feel to God, that transformation and healing begins to happen. That we let God into the broken places of our heart so that his presence can bring healing to bring light to the darkness. And so there's papers at the end of the pews with writing utensils. If there isn't enough on your particular um, pew, it's, I'm sure the person behind you or around you can grab some. But I'm going to give us a couple moments to just ponder. If you're not ready to write anything yet, just yet, that's OK. But do take the paper home and do this later. I know you probably haven't had enough time. Um, I'd really encourage you, if there is something that is burdening you and you haven't had an opportunity to write it down and express it, that as you go home today, that you would take some time to um, honestly bring your complaint before God. Um, I'll close in prayer and then... The Worship Band will come up. God, we come before you today aware that so many people, including ourselves, are pained by grief, loss, sickness, war, the list is endless as we consider the suffering that human beings in our world experience. And so, God, we cry out to you and we say, come, Lord Jesus, come. How long will we have to wait for you? I thank you, God, that you are a God who sees us. when we find ourselves unsure of where you are, not knowing whether you hear our cry. I pray, God, that you would make your presence known to us in real and tangible ways, in ways that bring healing and transformation. I pray these things in your name.